0: The Blaze Radio Network on demand.
1: Who were you ten years ago? <laughs>
0: Well, uh, 10 years ago, I, was, I had just recently become the president of the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education. Mm-hmm. That followed about six years of me being the legal director. And uh, what I was doing there was I was following my lifelong dream of defending freedom of speech. Um, I went to law school to do First Amendment work. Mm-hmm. It's, it's my lifelong passion. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, my, my, I'm a first-generation American, and I think one of the most amazing things about the U.S. is freedom of speech. Yeah, And, uh, I'd be, and I ended up defending it on campus. Somewhat to my surprise, and from pretty much day one, I realized back and day one was 2001 for me um, that things it was a lot easier to get in trouble on the modern college campus for what you say, said even back then. Yeah. Um, but what led me down the path to the book, frankly, is a very you know um, personal story. Um, I uh, always had issues with depression. Um, you know, I just kind of took it for granted. I'm you know Russian Irish. You know, yeah. it just goes with the territory. I assumed. But I got into a really bad one in 2007 uh, when I was about two years into my presidency of fire, and what's and I was I was hospitalized. I actually talk about like how bad it got, um, and what saved me. I'll say it flat out is um, cognitive behavioral therapy. So I am recovering from this devastatingly, terrifyingly bad depression. And I'm learning about CBT. And CBT is this practice by which you learn to talk back to your own exaggerated thoughts that everybody t- has mm-hmm. to a degree, mm-hmm. but depressed and anxious people have them in mm-hmm. particular. So you learn this vocabulary, like catastrophizing, you know, like don't catastrophize. Like mm-hmm. well, if you go on a date and suddenly you say, I'm going to die alone if it doesn't, <laughs> if it doesn't go well. Right. You're catastrophizing. Right. Um, my wife always makes fun of me because I'm also engaged in a lot of binary thinking. Not that mm-hmm. I think it's good, but I'm always like... Oh, it, Either dinner is going to be great
1: or it's going to be terrible. Like right. it's like, and I have to remember this. Have you ever heard the song "I Go to Extremes" by Billy Joel? <laughs>
0: yes, I, I, yeah, exactly. We have a lot in common. <laughs> yes, <I know> <laughs> we got to talk that down. Yeah. Uh, labeling this is particularly interesting for campus mm-hmm. is, is a. Call, call, these are all called cognitive distortions. These are things that every people do to distort the world around them. Um, labeling, overgeneralizing, all all of these kind of things, and as I'm studying these things that are effectively making me. Um, uh, Well, you know, and it takes a while. It's a daily practice. It doesn't work if you just know it Mm -hmm. intellectually. You have Mm -hmm. to practice this every day. Mm -hmm. But I was doing this at the same time while I was working on college campuses. And I was looking around going, wow, it's like every administrator is telling to students, um, by the way, everybody should label uh, overgeneralize, mm-hmm. uh, catastrophize, mm-hmm. engage in b- binary thinking, mind reading, all these things that they tell you not to do because they'll make you anxious and depressed. <laughs> and I was like, this is funny. So w- while I was defending freedom of speech, I'm also like, we're teaching really dysfunctional intellectual habits on campus, whether we know it or not. Yeah. But thank goodness the students weren't, watch- weren't learning it. They were, they, at, at that point, back in 2008, say, 2009, students were, believe it or not, still the best constituency for freedom of speech. Um, they generally came to uh, the defense of it uh, better so than usually professors and certainly than administrators, and so you know it's like it was I, we were modeling distorted behavior, um, but uh, the students weren't buying it. And then, seemingly overnight, in twenty thirteen twenty fourteen, um, suddenly the students uh, started demanding people get disinvited from campus um, at a much faster rate. They were demanding microaggression policies trigger warning policies they're even being told at places like Oberlin to avoid anything to they they had a list of things that the professors should avoid that included anything that touches on racism sexism classism it, it, it was about 12 what do you is, ta- what can you what teach can, or talk what, about what good book can <laughs> right you read right uh, under, under those circumstances and this really happened very quickly Um, And at at that point, I was lucky enough to be friends with Jonathan Haidt, um, who who became my my co-author on this. I talked to him about my CBT idea. um, And the reason why it was really connected, it wasn't just me arbitrarily connecting these things. The students, the thing that really made the students different in 2013, 2014 was that they were justifying why this person can't speak on my campus uh, by uh, appealing to sort of a medicalization. They were saying, not mm-hmm. I'm offended, not this person's evil. I might say that too. Mm-hmm. Um, but they were instead saying, um, it will medically harm me. Uh, or Actually, not so much me. It will medically harm someone, some other undescribed person over mm-hmm. there. They will be triggered by it. It will be traumatic, and, and you'll be damaged forever. And I was like, okay, this isn't wrong. Like, I I know enough, because I also became kind of a psychology hobbyist after that. I knew enough to, to, I was just kind of imagining Mm -hmm. the psychologist who, when you come in, you know, to his office and he's kind of, and you tell him he's anxious, like, oh, you must be in danger then. (laughs) (laughs) You must be in a great deal of danger. And it's like, it's totally dysfunctional. So I tell this to John. John gets excited about writing an article with me, which is a dream come true for me because I'm, you know, I'm already a huge fan of his work. Mm -hmm. He wrote a book called The Happiness Hypothesis, Mm -hmm. um, which I was a huge fan of, also The Righteous Mind, of course. And so I was thrilled to write this article with him. And so we wrote an article called Coddling the American Mind, which came out in the summer of 2015, and it solved everything. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how we fixed it. <laughs> that's how we fixed it. And we, we were waiting to get our heads chopped off, basically, because we, we're taking on all these sacred cows in yeah. and higher education and making the point that this, these are dysfunctional. These are teaching people bad habits of free speech, but they're also teaching, them, teaching the habits of depressed and anxious people. Um, and then things got so much worse on campus. Um, the fall of 2015, uh, some absolutely great pro, uh, protests in the fall of 2015, but others of them, they were demanding, you know, that was the, the famous Halloween costume, uh, uh-huh. pro, uh, fight over, over at Yale. Uh-huh. Um, that was the, um, uh, we talk about a case of Dean Spellman at Claremont McKenna College, where she clearly tried to write a letter that was very sympathetic to a student, but talked about this idea that, that, um, people had said that she didn't fit into the Claremont McKenna mold. Mm-hmm. They interpreted this as if she was some howling racist and got her kicked off of, of campus. And then things just seemed to get worse. And for the first time ever, of course, in 2017, we start seeing real large-scale violence in response to speakers
1: on campus. And and also Weinstein. Oh, geez. Well, yeah. he. That, that's terrible. Terrifying. He figures heavily in the book because his story is just so amazing. And, and you always
0: have to remind people, you know, what, 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 what was he saying? He was saying, I actually don't think it's a good idea to divide this campus in terms of race. Because they literally were telling white professors and white students right. to get off campus as some kind of social right. experiment that was supposed to be healthy. If you know basic group, uh, group polarization psychology, mm-hmm. no, you're actually just going to make it worse. Weinstein was entirely right, but he was also an old-fashioned. You know, old-fashioned as of, like, you know, uh, maybe—, maybe 2010. <laughs> yeah, way back in 2010. Yeah, right. This is what liberals used to think. Um, about
1: actually wanting people, you know, to meet friends and talk across various right. <laughs> so, divides. So let me ask you two questions. Sure. One, d- define what liberal means today— That's an excellent question. Um, I've wanted to write an article called The Crisis in
0: Vocabulary, you know, with a big exclamation mark at the end of it. Who knows?
1: Yeah. Because I don't know what a conservative means. I don't know what a liberal—I've always considered myself a classic liberal. Yeah. But that's always been murky to say because people are like, what is that? Yeah, It's somebody who believes in rights. (laughs) Right. But people—you know, you used to—you lived in San Francisco. You were ACLU. You were, if I'm not mistaken, more of a classic liberal. Exactly. So classic liberals, that doesn't even seem to play a role in so many people's lives now.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's, it's very strange because we—my uh, my, my father, you know, he, he's a Russian refugee, and, and he talks about how some of the shifting in the term came from the fact that socialist was a really bad word in the U.S. Mm-hmm. So liberal increasingly came to means—believes uh, uh, in civil liberties, which I certainly mm-hmm. agreed with, but also saw a big role for government, but nobody mm-hmm. was willing to say socialist. Mm-hmm. So whereas like in, in Denmark, you know, they still use liberal to mean someone who le- believes in lower regulations, but also civil liberties. Mm-hmm. That the state should play a somewhat limited role, mm-hmm. which is more, you know, the, the, the tradition I come from. I do think we were done a little bit of a favor terminology-wise that around this time, people started calling themselves progressives. Um, mm-hmm. be, I agree. Because that gets you back. And I, I know you're a huge fan of Woodrow Wilson.
1: <laughs> <laughs> for, Y'all love him. For, I love him. Who,
0: who helped create the, the the country my father grew up in, which was which didn't work out all that well. Yeah, y- no, it didn't.
1: Yugoslavia. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Not he, so successful. You no. Know, he had a lot of really <laughs> Really bad ideas. A lot of really bad ideas. Okay, so the next step on that uh-huh. is you did not get the blowback that you expected. Uh, for the 2015 article?
0: Yes. Yeah, the 2015 article. You know, we're taking on all these sacred cows, and we're waiting. You know, it's like, oh, they're going to come kill us. And from person after person, um, from comment after comment, um, we got—this was thoughtful. Uh, we, and Probably the most beautiful thing I read was a, was a young woman writing that— um, Her brother had committed suicide by jumping off of a building, Um, and she wrote about how she was in a class where they showed a movie that included a, a scene in which someone kills himself by doing that. And she realized nobody in that room knew that that had happened to her. And being able to be normal and nobody paying attention to her at that moment was the first time she felt normal since the death of her brother. And it, there were many t- stories like this about our basic point saying, yes. no, you're not making people—you're not do, doing people who have um, aversions to things any favors by saying, oh, by the way, now you can avoid them right. for the rest of your life. Right. And that's something that I you know, have to say over and over again. If you, uh, if you say, oh, you don't like spiders, okay, we're not going to talk about spiders anymore. Right. You're actually giving them more power. Right. And you can turn something that might just be a strong aversion to something into something that's more like a phobia. And worst of all, you can turn it into something called a schema, some, uh, a, a, a self-definition, something that you define as part of you. And one thing that I think is so messed up about one of the things uh, that you see on campus is we're doing what. I I would call negative schema training. We're more or less telling people, it's like, you
1: really need to internalize a belief that you're wounded forever.
0: Yes. That's, that's, that's perverse.
1: Yes. So you didn't get the pushback that you mm-hmm. thought. I see um, social justice and um, post-modernism infecting uh-huh. social justice to where it is just this nonsense that's right. happening. Um, and that's a lot of it's coming from the universities. Mm-hmm. So, are the university, are the professors beginning to wake up to this? Are they, did they not see it? Because it, you know, it it was brought over yeah. in the 70s as a plan to infect. <laughs> right. So are, are they not part of it? Are they, are they just so... Blind with their own education that they didn't Mm -hmm. think this through, that this is going to happen. What's
0: happening there? Well, definitely, you know, there are professors who, um, you know, would consider themselves lifelong liberals who have become some of our best allies on campus. Uh, partially because, well, some of them were good on free speech to begin with. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, there are people all across the spectrum who can be both both bad or good on free free speech. And, but one thing that we have seen lately is that uh, professors are starting to get that some of these tools are being turned on them. Um, and in some cases, in really remarkable uh, circumstances, like Brett Weinstein trying to say, just speak common sense about how you get people to get along. Yeah. Erica Christakis, you know, sending out something really that, that uh, the students from the 1960s would have been like, absolutely, um, you're defending our autonomy and our maturity. We can pick our own Halloween costume yeah, right. without, you know, the, 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 the nanny state of, right. uh, of Yale University telling us what to do. And she got treated as if what she had
1: actually said was everybody go out and wear Blackface, which was absolutely not what she'd actually and done. If I may use an example that I know you and Fire were uh-huh. um, uh, strong on the uh, the Klan. What was it? The Klan rally of Notre Dame. Oh, the, no- the Notre Dame like versus nine. the Klan. Yeah, that that's- again a Woodrow Wilson poison, but. Uh-huh they they rally and the students decide that they're going to take on the clan yep. right yep and tell me what the case is about the case is insane okay so this is the, this is a case involving
0: a guy who was uh, was working his way through school as a janitor um, so, like, not Jeez. not the man, um, but, but who was trying to educate himself on, on issues, particularly relating to you know race relations. And he was reading a book called Notre Dame versus the Klan that was about, I think, a 1926 march on Notre Dame, in which because uh, people, you know, you have to remind mm-hmm. people sometimes that the uh, <laughs> KKK was pretty broad in the people they <laughs> yeah. hated, so yeah. they also hated Catholics. <laughs> right. Um, but in this case, the Catholics came out to uh, fight fight them in the streets. And this is a book celebrating the defeat of the Ku Klux Klan when they tried to march on Notre Dame in the 1920s. It gleefully celebrates the fact that these students weren't going to take it. And a student, uh, a working class student, literally, um, who was reading this book, uh, because someone saw the cover, literally judging a book by its cover, um, was found guilty of racial harassment because people found, some two two employees apparently found the title, Notre Dame Versus the Klan, and the picture of a cross burning on the front of it um, to be harassing somehow. Nobody asked him what the book was about. Now, to be clear, even if it was, you know, Mein Kampf, even if it was offensive, you still have a right to read it. But it's extremely ironic that they went after a book that was manifestly anti-Klan. Right. Um, so we, we ended up having to take on IUPUI. Uh, this is Indiana University, Purdue University, <laughs> Indianapolis. That's a long name. Um, you know, on two different occasions to, to win this completely obvious case that you, you know, shouldn't judge a book by its cover.
1: self-educated guy mm-hmm. um i could only afford one semester uh i took it when i was 30 uh and um i was planning on going longer but i got a divorce on my first day of college uh and on your first day yeah and so i was i was really struggling prior to just trying to read as much as i could and you know it, it's it's you know Immanuel Kant is not the easiest to go <laughs> <No. laughs> through and uh and as i'm I'm going through this, the best professor is the one who says who half the class I swear he believes x, y, and z uh-huh the second half of the class. I swear he's on the other side. Uh-huh. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's and, uh, that's Alan Charles Kors. One, one, one of the
0: fa- I'm not saying actually literally, yeah. but one of the founders of Fire is this Enlightenment scholar named Alan Charles Kors. And if you guys take the the uh, Great Courses, he teaches a lot of them on the Enlightenment. And he teaches. And I know he's not. You know, um, he he, he's, he doesn't agree with Blaise Pascal, mm-hmm. um, who's a big defender of of, of um, the existence of God, and yeah, and he teaches. For an hour, this absolutely riveting best explanation of how brilliant Blaise Pascal was. And I know it's like it, did, it never occurred to you that you didn't want 100 percent agree with him. And the ability to do that is, is a lost art among some of these it professors.
1: Is. And that's what when I when I was going to college... I was reading Mein Kampf. Uh-huh. I want to know what's in Mein Kampf. It bothers me that it's in my library. Yeah. You know what I mean? I, but I, I it's made important. I, I
0: made myself read it because I felt like, you, you know, um, partially to figure out how much they actually— felt um, being censored made them stronger and that's a theme that does come up but what was surprising was founding how much he was obsessed with syphilis you know that, that just keeps on coming <laughs> yeah. up like how much mod- and he really wanted that he really wanted to be allies with Britain there, there, there was like all of this kind of like weird little yeah. and of course his sort of like backseat um, historical right being kind of like well we really shouldn't have allied with the Austro-Hungarian Empire it's like <laughs> yeah that's great genius like who, who, who didn't know that
1: <laughs> I, I, I read because I wanted to know, did the German people know? Yeah, of course they did. Read the book. Yeah. Yes, they knew. They absolutely knew. Unless you just compartmentalized right. and went, no, he didn't really mean that, which probably a lot of people did. Right. But we're losing that ability. Mm-hmm. We're, we've, we've, we've taken the word safe— I feel unsafe. Oh, yeah. No, you feel uncomfortable. Right. Very different thing. Very different.
0: And actually, it's kind of good to be uncomfortable
1: sometimes. Look at your story. Yeah. What got you to this theory? Yeah. Being very uncomfortable with your own thoughts. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And, you know, and it's
0: one of these things where it sounds hokey, but I, I recognize that there were just a lot of things. That I had these sort of like phobias of the, the, these um, limitations that I kind of had, you know, put on myself that I never would have gotten over unless I actually totally broke down. And so I have to say I learned so much from it. Um, I can't really say it was a bad thing.
1: But boy, was it uncomfortable. <laughs> you know what? My favorite quote is, the truth will set you free. Mm-hmm but it's really going to suck first. <laughs> <That sounds laughs> you're just right. going to hate it. If you're out of line with the truth, yep. you're going to hate it because you have to go, Yeah. How, am I going to change my life? I think, I mean, people perhaps, and I'm I'm hoping that this isn't true, that people don't think big thoughts because... Instinctively, they know if I find this to be true, uh-huh. then I'm at a crossroads. I'm going to have to knowingly live a lie. Yeah. Or it's going to cause me all kinds of pain in my friends and my relationships and everything else. Yep.
0: Yeah, it was it was it, it was interesting that year that I got really depressed. Um, you know, I got to live the polarization. Uh, it, I, I was you know I h- hang out in um, Shambala Buddhist circles in Philadelphia. I'm on the board of a theater company. I used to write you know plays and and, and, and short stories, and I was head over heels for this girl at the time, um, but she was really uncomfortable with what I did for a living uh, defend free speech on college campuses. And, I, oh, wow. <laughs> and, and 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 I'd gotten used to that, by but by, by 2007, um, that people because they realized I, oftentimes I was defending evangelicals or Republicans. And at one
1: po- isn't point...
0: isn't in plain speech. I know, exactly. And I, I remember at one point, point that, and this is where, you know, I, I knew that we were doomed. But um, <laughs> I, I, yeah,
1: I, they, you're catastrophizing. <laughs> we, 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 the, the relationship, you know, didn't make it. Oh, you mean them? Oh, I thought, no, no, you, oh, you too. No. I thought oh, you meant yeah, 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 everybody as, else. As, as okay. Couple, yeah. yeah, okay. Um,
0: I said, you know, I, I'm willing to defend the free speech rights of Nazis. Um, I'm certainly willing to defend the free speech rights of Republicans. And she actually said, "I think Nazis might be worse. I, th- I think Republicans might be worse." And I was like, "Oof." Um, so, and that was 2007,
1: and we've gotten much more polarized since then. So, what is, um, what are the factors that are playing in? Why was there the change in 1314? What happened to? Why do you say in 2006, the students are still kind of balanced, and they're still fighting for free speech, and then all of a sudden, boom— why things got so much worse, worse in
0: 2013, 2014 is the social science detective story of the whole book, yeah. because it really did seem to be overnight. And John really noticed that my co-author, um, a, a bunch of columnists I'm friends with, everybody in, at FIRE was like, what, did something just happen? Um, what, what just happened on campus? Because, and I always say, it's not like it was all that rosy prior to 2013, yeah. 2014, but those were administrators telling students that they had to follow ridiculous speech codes. Right. Suddenly the students were completely agreeing with the administrators. So the whole book is trying to figure out what happened. Now the most powerful theory out there at the moment that does seem to have some explanatory power um, is uh, social media. Um, this is uh, this is the first generation that um, grew up with you know smartphones with social media in their pockets, and this is the, the, what um, uh, Jean Twangy calls, uh, she, who's a, a researcher of, um, uh, of, of differences between um, generations. Calls iGen, and she uh, noticed that in, in all of the polling people born 1995 and after have a lot different characteristics than millennials. So we always have to explain this is not a book bashing millennials. I actually think millennials get a little bit of a hard rap. I think they really do. Uh, But iGen, when it comes to everything from anxiety to depression, even to the fact that there's there's a lot fewer moderates among iGen, which is just a total reflection of the society we live Mm in, you know, the the way you can sort of surprise people saying, do you know there are more conservatives among people born after 1995? Uh, And there are more liberals. <laughs> it's all at the expense of the moderates, um have, have been hollowed out. So um, we definitely f- found enough research to to, to convince us that um, social media plays a major role. Um, that In what way? Uh, two two important ways. Um, first, of course, polarization. Um, that. Uh, we talk, we ground a lot of the book in some really well-established research on how easy it is to make even people who look alike really dislike each other Mm -hmm. and how easy it is to give people
1: a a sense of us versus them. It's amazing to me. I hear this all the time. I've always gotten along with my family. I could always talk to my family, but I follow my family on Facebook and I can't talk to them anymore. (laughs) I mean, this is These are people you've been around your whole life. That kind of says maybe you shouldn't be reading Facebook, at least with your family and your friends.
0: Well, Facebook, both Facebook and Twitter really pat you on the back for having a really thick echo chamber. Yes. Um, They they make it feel good. And unfortunately, as John and I talk a lot about, it really plugs into this kind of tribal natural uh, sub-programming that we have Mm. where it just feels great to have this group that that um, it becomes sort of a quasi-religious experience.
1: Um, and so... I, I think for conservatives, it's like when Rush Limbaugh came on, he uh. was the first guy. Yeah. Then, you know, in 2008, a lot of conservatives felt like, I, is this just me? Yeah. I mean, we're all socialists now? This isn't... <laughs> what happened? Right. And so f- Facebook, it has helped people find tribes and go, okay, it's not me. Right. But it's also now convincing them that... Yeah. It's you right. against them. Yep. And that's why we
0: call this problems of progress. We always want to be really clear about this because I'm, I'm painfully aware of the fact that my dad was born in 1926 in Yugoslavia. His dad died when he was six. My life is freaking cake by yes. comparison. Right. Everything is easy by comparison. And we call them problems of progress partially because there were social scientists who were looking forward to the future and saying, you know, now that we're not as industrialized and people can uh, have greater freedom of movement. Freedom, movement, that we can increasingly live in communities that reflect our values. And that sounds absolutely lovely. And that's what we've done. But it does have a dark side.
1: And that dark side is tribalism. Um, Wait, wait. Does it have to, though? For instance, I have—I love San Francisco. I love San Francisco. It's one of the great—I'm not living in San Francisco. It's hard to have a good argument in San Francisco, (laughs) though. I I could say somebody used to live there. There are parts of Texas— if you're from san francisco i don't <laughs> recommend you go have an argument okay but why does why does that community in texas have to be ruled by the same rules that are in San Francisco. Why can't we say you want to live like that? Great, live that way. Yep. Why can't we leave each other alone? Why does the tribal nature yeah. have to be a warring nature? It doesn't necessarily have to be, but we definitely don't value um,
0: if because that's that that that's the difficult first step. Is you have to value talking to people on the other side of the uh, other side of the aisle, who people come from different places. So I was a holy terror when I lived in San Francisco, and, and I was hanging out with all the people. I would go to Burning Man with them, you know, yeah. like like. Um, But when it came to actual political arguments, I was constantly frustrated when I lived there. And people would talk about middle America. Usually, like, the stand-in for middle America was Kansas. And with real contempt, not all of them, but Mm there would be uh, some—occasionally, like, someone would just go off, uh, you know, usually a white, fairly privileged, you know, dude would talk about how much he hates the people from middle America. And I'd just be standing there with, like, a mouth open being kind of like, okay, my dad's from Yugoslavia. uh, Imagine someone saying— uh, oh, those Croatians—they're all so ignorant and backwards. Like, wouldn't that set off a little bit because of the first-generation American? When people talk about different regions with that kind of contempt, I'm like, no, no, no—that's not cool. Don't generalize like that. Right. Um, but but there was nobody pushing pushing back on that, and I think that's part of the problem of an echo chamber is that it tends to push you all in one direction. Mm-hmm. However, actually, this is fun. Um, the, to, to remember this, you know, all those experiments that, that, that they they did, um, you know, from the '40s on up, where they uh, would. Have um, a classroom uh, where there'd be you know people saying which line is longer and like uh, most of the people say the shorter line is longer it 's a setup mm-hmm. and to see how people will conform mm-hmm. um, and sadly you know a lot of people will most people will conform they 'll say okay, I guess I guess I was wrong the shorter line is actually the longer line, but it only takes one person to go oh to, to call it, this is nonsense that 's
1: obviously the longer one to break that spell um, so there is some good news in the the research. In history, isn't it always the person who says, I will not conform? <laughs> yes, they're, they're usually killed. <laughs> <yes>. <laughs> but isn't that the person in history absolutely, that changes
0: everything? Absolutely. And this is actually, when I talk about First Amendment, when I talk about freedom of speech, the the premise I begin with is, everybody understand, free speech is not normal. Our natural instincts are to burn, crucify, behead, make, drink hemlock. Right. You know, these might sound familiar to right, some people. Right. That, that's the way... Like, we have a history of treating, treating dissent, d- dissenters. The idea that you should actually listen to them—that sounds crazy. Uh, you know, five hundred
1: years ago. Um, if you know anything in history, it's always been the people who were crazy, <laughs> right? That you went. No, they weren't crazy. It, one of my favorite stories in American history is George Washington is dying. Okay, okay. he has uh, pneumonia; in his lungs are filling, filling up. He can't. He can't breathe. And his, the usual doctor, the one that everybody loves said. Bleed him. Bleed him. Yeah. A young doctor who is also standing in the room says, okay, I know this sounds crazy, (laughs) but I don't think he can breathe. And I've heard there's this new thing. If I take a tube and I pop it right here. Oh, wow. Give him a trach. Yeah. I think we can save him. Yeah. Yeah. The older doctor said, are you out of your mind? Yeah. He was killed. That kid was crazy. No, he wasn't. Yeah. He was ahead of his time. Yep. And even if even if those crazy people say things, there, there's usually a germ. I mean, you know, there are some crazy people who are just crazy. Just crazy, yeah. Right, but they, they can, there might be a germ. I don't understand why we can't. I don't want to live in a nation of all artists. Uh-huh. We'll never get anything done. We'll, <laughs> right. It'll be horrible. I don't want to live in a nation full of accountants. Right. Okay, there will be no art. They need each other. They really do. What happened to the idea that we need each other? Uh, I
0: just don't see a lot of people valuing it at this point. I think maybe we're, I think we've gotten so close to the precipice right now. People are starting to go, wait a second. This is, this is not the way we, we, we I, I want to live. Um, so far the response to the book, you know, which we're where we, uh, you know, slaughter a lot of sacred cows and we've been pleased that it's, that we haven't yet been fully
1: called heritage. <laughs> yeah. When I talked to Jonathan about the righteous mind. Yeah. Um, I was so excited to talk to him. I read it and I said it's a, this it's is such it. a great book. And I was like, This is this is this is this is part of the answer. Yep. You know, if we can get people to understand the language that we're 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 mis- well, this is it. And he, he bummed me out so badly. He said, Yeah, it's not gonna work. And I said <laughs> What this is the answer and he said, You have to get so many people yeah. to do it and they're just not gonna do it. Do you think that's changing? I hope so, um, because, you know, if something can't continue
0: in a particular direction, it won't. <laughs> and we we can end up in a really ugly place if we keep going in this direction. And particularly, um, if you look at the um, sort of exaggerated polarization we have now, imagine it 10 times worse. And if some of the characteristics that we're seeing in, in iGen, um, you know, with with the lack of moderates, with the... Um, some of these ideas where, the, you know, where they're essentially f- um, ideas of in- individual f- fragility, but that gets and ends up being used almost like kind of like a weapon that essentially mm-hmm. since everybody's so fragile, you may not believe the following things mm-hmm. or even speak the following things. And on the other side, you've got, you know, a, a population of conservatives who've just, you know, had enough and, and hate all of this stuff and are talking and getting angry among their own people. And what I've seen in the last couple of years is sort of like the echo chamber, you know, on, on the left on campuses and the echo chamber that's a little bit more on the right are starting to
1: collide and we're just seeing the first sort of glimmers of what that looks like and it and it's not pretty. I'm uh, I'm very concerned only because student of history everything is a cycle yeah. to everything there is a season. Yep. We've had a good economic season through all of this. Yeah. Which is great. We hit a serious downturn. We forget even a downturn. We have Silicon Valley working Toward a 100 percent unemployment rate yeah. as a good thing. Yep. When that kicks in, yep. If we are doing this, how do we pull it back? What do yeah. what? What does the average person on either side of the aisle? Yeah. How do they? How do they? Let's say you have a kid who's an iGen, which is what ages born um, after 95. That's born after uh, born after 95. I think it ends maybe around 2012. Okay. Yep. So if you have a, if you have a kid who's iGen and they're in college and they're, and you're seeing this madness, how do you reach to them? <laughs> it's kind of funny. Um, Height is much more pessimistic about this. Yeah, I know uh, <laughs> uh, too.
0: And it's kind of funny. Like we we we're, we you know we're good friends and we we take turns sometimes. Yeah. Sometimes some days I'm like it's hopeless, you know? <laughs> and, 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 and he's more like oh, don't catastrophize. And sometimes I'm like come on, like right. if I could wave a magic wand and have one thing, um, and actually maybe your listeners can help with this because uh, we've been I've been talking with the College Board and the National Constitution Center. Um, uh, Jeff Rosen who's brilliant, um, and it, we seem to be thinking this same thing if it could be a norm for every high school in the country to uh where you basically ha- have to do an oxford style debate but with one rule you have to take the opposite side of what you actually believe and that helps a lot because it's very easy if you're in an echo chamber if you, everybody agrees with you and the and, and some people just agree with you more adamantly than than others um it's very easy to think people who disagree with you are either stupid or evil um, and that's a very easy perception to come across, but law school, you know, for, you know, is pretty is pretty good for because you see in yourself. You start seeing in yourself that like when moot court is assigned, you, you hear what the case is, and you, your initial impressions of it's like, oh yeah, totally like uh, that should totally go towards the plaintiff. Um, but then you get assigned to the defendant, and within like a couple of days of reading, you're like oh, it's totally a defendant, and you realize how pliable, how how mm-hmm. convincible you are. It really helps you understand um, some of the tribalism and to understand that generally people aren't motivated quick digression but it'll make sense um one of the most frustrating things about the book uh, has been that people sometimes only respond to the title. And I've done some radio shows where it's really clear that the, the, the host has only read the title. <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, so coddling. And usually, if they're a little bit more left on the spectrum, they think they think they mm-hmm. think coddling's uh, you, you know offensive. But if they're more right, I've gotten a couple people saying um, uh, how good intentions and bad ideas, and I was like, well, what are the good intentions? You know, you know I can't believe you're saying that these you know these left radicals are, have good intentions. And what I just say is kind of like generally for movements in humankind, people don't stand at the top of the mountain and say, in the name of evil, follow me.
1: <laughs> but, it, but I will tell you, don't all of those people stand at the pinnacle and say— I know I'm right. Yes, exactly. Certainty is the, so, certitude is the problem. Certitude is
0: the problem. And, and it's one of these things where, and I've heard people say that you have to, you know, go towards certainties and we're just really tempted towards and all this kind of stuff. And I think it's true but it is really possible if you work at it to have that wonderful sense of like looking at a gigantic library full
1: of books becomes like looking at a night sky full of stars you know yeah, it's, it's just it's wonderful it's, the, the things you don't know being certain about something is not bad as long as you say but I am open to new information <laughs> yeah, exactly. If, until I am absolutely positive until some new piece comes that I didn't know about yep. that might change everything.
0: Well, and I, I talk about free speech as being a natural consequence of the fact that individually we're not all that clever.
1: <laughs> <laughs> Even the smartest of us, we need, to, we
0: need to consult with the best ideas and, and occasionally some of the worst, worst ideas, ideas uh, in
1: human history. And I, I will tell you some of the... W- you know, I I obviously was not not for Barack Obama. And I get into people on the right are like, how could you possibly say this? Barack Obama made me a better man. He absolutely made me a better man. I am glad in some ways that Barack Obama was there Mm -hmm. because he threw me up against the wall and challenged what I thought I knew. I had to I learned about anti-colonialism. I learned about the progressive era. Mm -hmm. I learned uh, about the Constitution deeply. Um, I've learned so much. Same with Donald Trump. Mm -hmm. You know, we can either look at this as a bad experience or a good experience that you learn from. You know, learn from it. Learn from it. But are we? Yeah. I mean, I have a very expansive uh, you know, view of, of
0: freedom of speech that comes down very simply to it's important to know what people really think, period. Um, and uh, and I say this, and people you know, they're they're kind of like, but well, because it, a lot of the way people try to challenge freedom of speech is by saying, well, what if they have
1: terrible ideas? It's like, do you think you're safer for not knowing those terrible mm-hmm. ideas? <laughs> do, you, do you think do you think that? And also, I'd, I'd want to live if my kids were we we're living next door to somebody who's a real racist. Uh-huh. I don't want him saying all the politically correct things. I want him. Yeah. I want my son going over there and have coming, dad. Dad, you know, he was just saying, great, we know who he is. Yeah. Don't go there anymore. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, I, I talk about censorship as
0: being a, is a, little, a little blue, but uh, like taking Xanax for syphilis. Where <laughs> essentially you're just taking something that makes you feel better, but you're just getting sicker by the minute. Um, and it, it, it takes, you know, it takes a little bit of like the looking at things a little bit more sometimes like an anthropologist. Oh, yeah. So I went on a, a show um, and I was and I was there to talk about why uh, to talk about the disinvitation of Steve Bannon from the New Yorker festival. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, a lot of celebrities got up in arms that they, they were going to do an interview with, with with Steve Bannon at the, at the New Yorker Festival of mm-hmm. Ideas, and I was there to festival of what of ideas? Okay, yeah, ideas. I, and I and I was there, you know, of course with my First Amendment technical hat on. I'm like, well, of course the New Yorker can invite whoever it wants, mm-hmm. but with my marketplace of ideas, sort of like knowing what people really think, hat on. I was like, okay. And I and then the responses I got on Twitter were the funniest. People were like, so you're saying you would have want I heard an interview with someone from ISIS And I'm like I would love to hear it. interview It yes. <laughs> would be one of the most interesting interviews you can imagine I, You know you stare into the face of evil That's great And then the other stream that people were going for Was but now he's irrelevant And I'm like he was this arguably the second most powerful person in the White House, like two weeks Yes. you 're kidding yourself. and now and now he 's talking to all these groups mm-hmm. in europe so it, it it is this you know we, uh, we talk about this um, uh, me and pamela Paretsky, She she 's uh, she was our chief researcher for the book, and John we talk about uh, moral pollution a lot, basically just the idea that once you get super tribal. Um, it becomes this much more kind of superstitious idea that if I'm in the presence of, if I shake the hands of, if I'm anywhere near, you know, the bad, uh, the, the bad man, it's somehow like it's going to rub off on
1: you like some kind of evil pox. I think one of the most vile voices out there is Louis Farrakhan. I'm glad I can hear exactly what Louis Farrakhan is yeah. saying. You know, and I, I don't have, want him silenced. You know, you, you could invite him to your here by mitzvah and you'd be like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah. I thought I, you were I, a great guy. I had no idea. <laughs> right. Um, are you... How, how concerned... Let me just take a quick sure, um, sure. offshoot here. Yep. Um, how concerned are you about the growth of of Google with its algorithms now being taught uh, what to recognize hate speech? Yeah, How... I mean, what hate speech is—first, I, I don't believe in hate speech. Right. But what hate speech is to one person is not hate speech to the other person. Right. What—are you concerned about oh, the yeah. loss— I mean, the colossal overnight loss of—I would call it a digital ghettoization. Yeah. Um, hate speech has always been kind of the boogeyman that you have to deal with when you're dealing with free
0: speech on campus. And the first thing you have to explain is there's a whole generation of students who largely believe that hate speech is protected. Uh, Sorry, it's unprotected speech. Um, They think it's a special category of unprotected speech. And that's just not true. Um, It's too vague. It's too broad. It wouldn't fit any of the First Amendment analyses. But then you have uh, institutions like Google, you know, who I've always had a great deal of respect for. But then you look at cases like what happened to James Damore, you know, who wrote something that was Mm -hmm. – you know, I think Height wrote about it, saying mm-hmm. it was you know it wasn't per- wasn't perfectly right on everything, but it was it was also a d- not dismissive. D- it was a dispassionate mm-hmm. you know argument of what 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 the stats say about gender differences, including preference for mm-hmm. some for for some reason, like the taboo around saying that men and women might actually be drawn to different fields. <laughs> is it, it's like is right. that really the end of the world? But right. but but anyway, but yeah, the idea of um have a, a, a handful of institutions having so much power over what we. Can read and what we um, uh, scares me. Uh, and if they start actually policing hate speech, uh, I get worried that the work that I do where we're, you know, uh, and, and, I, and I always have to be clear, 99 out of 100 cases that we're dealing with are more like the guy getting in trouble for reading a book or for, um, you know, cracking a joke right. that, 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 um, that anybody off campus would be like, I don't even understand what was, what was offensive right. uh, about that is going to get in trouble. Meanwhile, though, uh, I do have some sympathy for Google and for Facebook because they're being pushed towards this um, yeah. by some really idiotic laws coming out of the European Union. Do you, you know about this whole right to be oh forgotten God. thing, right?
1: Uh, right. Right to be forgotten. Be forgotten? Yeah. Okay. Is this like... Transgender naming? No, no, no. Okay, this is much, much worse than that. We that be be forgotten.
0: Uh, the European, uh, 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 one of the European courts, um, uh, it, it issued a decision talking about you people, individuals have a right to be forgotten, and uh, the th- there was a law passed that tried to um, uh, to make this law uh, controlling law for the entire EU that put it on uh, Google. Uh, If someone came to you and said, that article about me is old and irrelevant, um, so you have to remove it or or face a huge fine. Um, Yeah, face a huge fine unless Google, for some reason, decides to actually put up a fight to keep it. So it's like it's all downside for Google. Um, Subsequent decisions say that it can't just be for Google Europe. It has to be for Google for the entire world. And it comes from this kind of ridiculous idea that, you know, like if, you know, so what, you know, I, so what if I uh, I murdered someone 20 years ago? I have a right to be forgotten, that to be forgotten. And, and it's just so it's um, among numerous dunderheaded laws that I see coming out, uh, uh, coming out of. Europe that, uh, that are actually having spillover effects to the whole rest of the world. So in some ways, you know, I am worried about the internal politics of Google, but I'm also worried about how um, different, you know, governments are sort of taking yeah. advantage of every uh, opportunity to
1: limit them. That's the thing I love about our Constitution. Yeah. It doesn't, you don't have a right to be forgotten. Yep. You know, 18th Amendment is, is it the 18th? Well, it was Prohibition. No, yeah, 18 is still there. Yep. The 21st repeals it. But that scar is still there. So you learn, you know, perhaps you read it all and you go, Hey, we did that once before. Let me take, let's, let's go through the three bad ideas. Oh, sure. Sure. Yeah. Okay.
0: So part of the idea of the book um, was, uh, was to kind of recreate sort of what we did in the original article um, and to basically saying it's as if we are giving a generation of people, of, of kids, of, of younger people, the worst possible advice you could yeah. ever imagine. So we, talk, we, we create this situation of going up to this you know supposedly wise man, um, and he tells us three, uh, three pieces of what he thinks are wisdom. Um, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker? <laughs> Always trust your feelings. And life is a battle between good people and evil people. And we we do this as kind of a joke in the beginning of it. And it, and we have it's me and John going. That's like, those are like the worst ideas we've ever heard <laughs> in our entire life. And so the first one, what doesn't kill you makes you weaker, is obviously a play on, on Nietzsche. What doesn't kill you makes you stronger. And of course, we, we, we recognize it's like, yes, there are things that are short of killing you that can yes. still, you know, leave you in, in worse shape. But, yes. but it stands for a great truth, um, which is, you know, both. Uh, so we tried to make all the great untruths um, things that were both uh, uh, bad in terms of uh, modern psychology, what modern psychology would tell you, and bad in terms of uh resilient ancient wisdom, which is surprisingly coherent on a number of issues. One of them is that people need challenge. Um, You're going to see that in practically every culture, that uh, it it would be absurd to say people don't need challenge. Mm -hmm. Um, But uh, what we see on campuses that we dub safetyism is, and also for parents these days, you know, K through 12, um, this idea that kind of like there's no limit to how safe you can be. And they also expand that into that weird kind of definition of safety that means like emotionally unperturbed. Yeah, right, so yeah. it, 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 the, the concept creeps in two different uh, directions, that there's no amount of physical safety that's t- that's too much or it comes with no bad side. And by the way, let's add an emotional safety too. Mm-hmm. And of course, you know, what we talk about in the book is Nassim Taleb's idea of anti-fragility. Human beings aren't, uh, we're not fragile and we're not merely resilient, we're actually creatures that need stressors. We need to be challenged or we atrophy and die or we grow healthy and strong. Uh, You know, probably best represented by, you know, astronauts. If you send them up to uh, send them up into no gravity, their joints start decaying Mm -hmm. really quickly. Mm -hmm. Um, But on the other hand, you know, if you if you run every day and you lift a little bit of weight, it's amazing how much how much you can
1: improve. I think it's I think it's interesting they're doing studies now on what what the what they think the effects will be on living on Mars. Yeah, and they believe that after I think it's twenty years of living on Mars, that you actually won't be able to mate with an Earthling, because you will no longer be technically what we call human. Wow. Species. So you're so you actually you're changing. Uh huh. And and it, it, I think it's interesting that. Part of being human Uh is having the pull and the drag on you. Absolutely. And so what we see with this obsession of safety
0: is that there wasn't really meaningful pushback uh, saying that, listen, we can take this too far. It can actually be harmful. Um, But of course it can be harmful. Uh, It's just the same way we tell people, you know, um, you don't overcome phobias by, uh, you know, bubble wrapping the world from your phobia. Right. Um, so that's great truth number one. The second one I actually like because it sounds so darn romantic, mm-hmm. um, which is— uh, Follow your feelings, <sighs> Luke. <laughs> your feelings are always right. Um, and every, you know, uh, a lot—well, not every, um, but, you know, movies and mm-hmm. sci-fi and a lot of stuff that I love does a lot of times have a, have this idea of your feelings are always right. And in one sense, it is correct to say that your feelings are always telling you something. Mm -hmm. Just it's not always what you think it is. Um, Susan David uh, um, has this great quote where she uh, it used to take me paragraphs to say that. You you, you run into that where you feel like Mm -hmm. you you took a book to explain Mm -hmm. something and Mm -hmm. someone gets it down to like a pithy Mm -hmm. phrase. She says, feelings are information, not directions. Um why you're angry, why you're jealous, why you're uh why you're guilty. Without interrogating those things, we could be way off base on on where they're actually coming from and what they're trying to tell us.
1: So have you ever read Gavin DeBecker, De Becker, The Gift of Fear? No. You should. He's one of the best protectors um in the world. Um and his book, Gift of Fear, starts out with everybody always says when there's a serial killer, you know. You know I thought something was weird but I dismissed it but my dog every time he came by that dog my dog went crazy yep. and he said the difference the, the, the we both have dogs and people have oh. a gift and it's a gift of fear Yep Dogs don't analyze it uh-huh. and then rationalize it away. You right. have to examine it because yep. the dog's not always right. Right. You know what I mean? You just and might smell like someone that, that they didn't like Correctly.
0: Correct. correct. Well, there, uh, the, uh, a book I always like to recommend is called The Upside of Your Dark Side. Mm. which talks about how you know all these quote unquote negative emotions can actually have you know uh, that you, we have a built in system for defending yourself if you're wrong
1: you know that, that, that all of this all of this stuff is, is so Heretical now. This uh, oh, is yeah. the stuff that was ready to be deleted from Kindle yeah. or burned. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um,
0: so upside your dark side, really got to recommend it. But, you know, the, the emotional reasoning one is really dear to my heart for obvious reasons, um, because, you know, overcoming depression and anxiety is partially talking back to your feelings, it's going kind of like, OK, I know I'm terrified right now, but guess what? Nothing's actually happening right now. Um, And the amazing thing about CBT and and people sometimes really get hung up on the fact that there's a T at the end of that and it's therapy and it's like, aren't you recommending the therapeutic state that got us into this? (laughs) And I always have to say, if you think about what CBT is actually saying... It's, say, it's basically applied Stoicism. Um, it's in line with ancient philosophy. It's in line with Buddhism um, at the same time, trying to actually, uh, you know, the practice of seeing your thoughts is not necessarily, you are not your thoughts is, is like a distillation sometimes of Buddhism. Uh, but unfortunately on campuses, it's as if we're saying, you know, if you're ever offended, we have to do something about that. Don't examine if you should be offended. Don't be examined. Don't examine if it's rational. Don't examine any of that stuff. But being offended is enough. And that's a really dangerous, you know, uh, behavior to, 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 to cultivate because you end up leading to a situation where people can really convince themselves that the entire world needs to be silenced. It's,
1: um, you know, you said you you are not your thoughts. I believe you are your thoughts. Mm. And we're just teaching, we're teaching people not to examine mm. their thoughts and just be comfortable uh-huh. living in their fear, aren't we? Well, the, the, the you are not your thoughts idea, and this is one of the fun things
0: about meditation, and I'm terrible at mm-hmm. meditating, by the way. And I occasionally have people saying, that that must mean you're a great Buddhist. So I'm like, no, no, I really mean it. I'm not good at it. But I have, you know, after a, like a weekend, you kind of reach a point where you can see sort of your thoughts sort of bubbling up, and you don't
1: necessarily have to do anything about them. Correct. You, you can just watch them. You write, you write in the book, your worst enemy cannot harm you as much as your own thoughts Unguarded. Yeah, exactly. Right. So yep. it's just guarding your thoughts, yep. examining and, them. And, and you know, for me, uh, you know, I, I got this
0: uh, I, when I did the National Constitution Center. I got in this funny argument with um, Jeff Rosen that was really actually kind of awesome. We were talking about um, is it okay to you know to have bad thoughts, and and he talks about how a lot of Buddhism is is going towards right thinking, and meanwhile, you know, I'm more of the you can think whatever you want as long as you don't think they're they're telling you what you need to do Mm -hmm. Uh, um, but you know then again I used to write science fiction so (laughs) (laughs) okay so uh, that's that's greater truth number two yeah number three number three life is a battle between good people and uh, evil people And that one is the great untruth of us versus them. Um, Now, of course, I do occasionally get the question, like, are you saying human evil doesn't exist? And I say, I absolutely believe human evil exists. Um, And I think the best definition that's come up, uh, that anyone has come up with it, is F. Scott Peck's definition in a book called People of the Lie, where he basically says that human evil on an individual level is are people who are sociopaths who uh, also get joy from hurting people.
1: Um, would you, would you, because I know you write about, um, you write about him. Would you put Foucault in, in that category? I don't know enough about him. I, I know they didn't really practice what he, what, uh, what he preached, so to speak, but I don't know I'm, much about I'm, personality. I'm just thinking about this. <laughs> Anyone, I, I think postmodernism, the way he described it when he came here um, and started using it after the Paris riots uh-huh. um, was with the intent to destroy, to destroy the um, Enlightenment, the, uh, you know, everything that came with the Enlightenment. Um, uh, that, to me, at anytime somebody is doing something covertly yeah. that is trying to destroy, because I cannot find a... I can't find a good reason for postmodernism and uh-huh. postmodern thought um when the goal is no, the enlightenment, no science, empirical data, that's all bad. Yeah. There is no truth. I can't find a a a good human reason for that. You know, what how what is that building? It's interesting because I've known people who are self-described um you
0: know existentialists or or even nihilists who are perfectly fine um
1: you know who who somehow it's just a sort of fun game that they play in their yeah, head that's different than setting out yeah. to when he arrived mm-hmm. when he when he arrived and he brought this into the university system the story is that mm-hmm. they were on the tarmac of in boston and one looked at the other and said you know what we're doing is we're planting a virus in uh, this culture interesting that kind of bad
0: yeah <laughs> uh, well, but I, do, I and i do think there are there are dangerous ideas But all we're really saying is the relatively old-fashioned notion. For the most part, people are both a combination of, you know, some good motivation, some bad motivation. Some people have better control over uh, their impulses than others. Um, And if your first assumption is that if you're on the other side of the puzzle fence for me that you're evil,
1: you're doing it wrong. (laughs) I, I, you know, when I left Fox, you know, you can't be hated by half the country and not go, gosh, am I that? Yeah, you know what part of that am I? What's true? What's not on this? And one of the first things I did was I tried to ban the word "evil" from my lexicon uh-huh. because it's, you know, it, it, it that's a pretty intense word. Sure. And um, in in trying to talk to people, let's say on the right or the left. Mm-hmm. Let me just use the right. Talking to people on the right and saying no. Let me. Democrats, they mm. don't want to destroy America. People will in their head see, well, this guy, this guy, this guy does. Yeah. Well, that guy, that guy, that guy is not all Democrats, yeah. you know, and we we are so labeling. And once you say, oh, the Democrats want to destroy America or the conservatives want to destroy this group, mm-hmm. um, that's evil. Yeah. Well, and the problem is, of course, it, it feeds uh, and, and
0: group dynamics. That's another thing that M. Scott Peck talks about is, is that the, when you really want to see some of the worst things humankind have ever done, it's in situations of sort of uh, where people have their war hats on and there's diffuse authority um, where essentially nobody's really taking responsibility for, yeah. for any individual uh, any individual thing. But part of the problem is that it, be, it becomes almost a self-fulfilling prophecy because, you know, um, and I, I, I like to blow conservatives' minds by, by saying this part, um, you should Understand that there are people that I'm friends with in San Francisco uh, when when they when they go on like anti Obama rants I'm like who and they think he's a neocon and I'm not kidding <laughs> like, like they, they think he's essentially you know right of center right. or like a right wing like basically right. like and, and it's like yeah that, that I know I actually know mm-hmm. these people and uh, but unfortunately the more we get our war hats on and the less actual exposure we have to other, uh, to, to people from the other side of the fence, the easier it becomes to make them into cartoons and people that you don't, uh, th- that have nothing useful or productive to say. And I, I, I do feel, uh, you know, I almost feel like I have to apologize for this. Um, the, you know, I was, I, I thought of myself as being, and compared to a lot of my classmates, I was, you know, open-minded um, when it came to, you know, heretical ideas on campus. But, um, you know, when I was in law school, you know, it's Stanford, it's the Bay Area, um, you know, labeling someone as a conservative thinker was a way like, oh, well, you know, I didn't realize, um, you know, that I shouldn't be reading Edmund Burke or Thomas Sowell or Camille Paglia. (laughs) And then, of course, I finally did. And I was like. Oh really like this is the, this is the, the the ideas you're trying to protect me from you know and then realizing that thoughtful people all over the spectrum were, were able to talk about you know what was valuable in Burke and certainly you know what what uh, and soul I mean like mm-hmm. absolutely you know an amazing thinker mm-hmm. um, and th- that's part of the, what I call like the first protection of, of what I call the uh, perfect rhetorical fortress that we're spending all of this um, uh, cognitive energy on college campuses to try to figure out what ways, reasons for why you don't have to listen to somebody. And, you know, defense number one is, well, you're conservative, so I don't have to listen to you. Mm Done. (laughs) Done with 50% of the population. But as you get in deeper, like a lot of the the privilege theory, and of course, privilege is a real thing. There Mm -hmm. are comparatively Mm -hmm. privileged people. There's no question about that. Americans, yeah, all for, Americans. For example, are, certainly compared yeah, to you know, where my rest da- the world. Where my dad grew up. Yeah. for example. Um, the uh, But when you make it really sort of like draconian, really um, about kind of like what race you are and what your background is, if you follow the sort of uh, the privilege hole all the way down to the bottom, it applies to 100% of the entire population. But here's the trick. You don't have to call privilege on someone if you don't feel like it. So you can so you now have it. You, you know, you now have it intellectual tactic that gives you multiple levels of defense for having to listen to anybody uh, you, you disagree with. Um, we've, we've done it. We've come up with this perfect fortress so you never have to listen to anyone you agree uh, disagree with, but still have the option of listening to everybody you do agree with. And it's so pointless. So, so it's one of these things like watch the way people argue on Twitter. And you know people on the right do this too. They're kind of like, why should I listen to some libtard from uh, <laughs> from Massachusetts? Mm-hmm. Um, but on the, on the left, the, the, the tactics are like, well, first I'm going to call you out for for, you know, being a white male, heterosexual. I was like, well, actually, I'm gay, you know? Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, and the next one, oh, but you're a conservative, so I don't have to listen. Well, actually, I'm not. <laughs> I have this, you know, uh, th- that you can go down and down and down. It's like, right. wow, there's like 50 levels of defense you have to right. ever having to, before you actually even get to the argument. And as far as like literal cultural fixes, you know, just, it's just another ad hominem. It's just another way to, to basically say, I don't need to actually address what you're actually
1: saying because you, um, and it's just not productive. It just leaves us nowhere. Right, so let's dismantle all three of these. Nice. Give okay. me the give me the cures or the the steps that we should all be taking with all three. Let's start with with uh, the bad idea number one. What doesn't what doesn't heal you makes you weaker. Do you want the deep ones or the easy ones? Surprise me. I I'd like a little of both.
0: Yeah, you, you know, it's one of these things where. I don't want to get too bleak because I do think that some – because, you know, conservatives a lot, when when I talk about what I do on campus, which is defend freedom of speech, mm-hmm. there's a lot of like, oh, it's lost forever. The academy has gone. Kind of like the, people will never have free speech there again. And I'm like, but have we even tried, you know, giving lectures about freedom of speech
1: ever? I don't think <laughs> – I, I, I think the biggest problem is we are a culture that is – um, teaching everyone you're wounded and uh-huh. there's no recovery yep. um uh, the second thing we're teaching people is you should not talk to to others um and um the the, the problem is i think we're running I, I had a train of thought here but i lost it I, I think the problem is is we're we're running out of time yeah and if we don't get these things fixed pretty quickly, yeah, it is pretty pessimistic, isn't it? yeah,
0: no, and and that's where you know on our bad days, John and I are both like, Ugh, you know how how are we gonna how are we gonna fix this?" But for younger kids, you know I, I definitely you know, like I said, I have two kids under three, um delightfully, some of the things that could be the best um, are the things that kids enjoy the most. Uh, we have a whole chapter on play. Um, t- I love this. Teaching people about their own anti-fragility,
1: let them, let kids play and let them play in a way that's, that adults aren't actually running it. Yeah, Amen. My, um my wife and I were in the car after oh. I read this and I said, you know, kids have to ride their bikes and they need to ride, you know, get out of the, we live in a gated community, get mm-hmm. out of the, she said, oh my gosh. So, and I said, no, honey, there's, it's not, yeah. it's not, I've been reading a lot of Steven Pinker. It's not, <laughs> right. it's not that bad. Right. In fact, it's really good. But there's two problems. The adult doesn't want. Yeah, but if it happens, then I'm a sure. bad parent. Yep. Um, and you. And the. And the. The stats. Don't matter to yeah, people. But, yeah, and that's something we talk about. And we try to we try to show compassion for everybody in this book.
0: Um we, we bend over backwards to, mm-hmm. to 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 do that. So I try to figure out like why parents who are living in the safest age possibly in human history, probably in human history, almost certainly in human history, mm-hmm. um, are acting like it's the height of the crack
1: epidemic in, yeah. in New York City in terms of murder. And don't I, don't, don't we got to X-ray your candy for Halloween? Yeah, oh exa- Which is, of course, nonsense. nonsense. <laughs> <as laughs> <well. laughs>
0: and um, you know, like, it, but but then I remember, you know, of course, uh, it was a, when I was a kid. Uh, you know, I I started college in 1992, and for my entire life, it had been a safe bet that it was going to be more dangerous in, in terms of murder rate country the mm-hmm. next year. And so a lot of people who are my age or even close to my age who are having kids did grow up in a situation where it seemed like, you know, projecting forward, I used to write like dystopian science fiction yeah, yeah, about yeah. what 2000 would just be everybody, mm-hmm. you know, co- you know having to arm themselves with multiple machine guns because it was just that dangerous. But then amazingly, it, it everything started getting a lot safer and we still don't know entirely mm-hmm. why, which is amazing mm-hmm. by itself. Um, so, but now we live in with this major disconnect you know like the affluent parents think that their their kids are going to be kidnapped at any step mm-hmm. and they're, and you know statistically speaking they're just that's just extraordinarily unlikely have you seen the movie Taken? <laughs> but then you get such a cool opportunity to get Liam Neeson <laughs> she yeah, has amazing skills but yeah but so one problem that, that uh, it does lead to is that is finding the other parents who are willing to, to so your kids can have someone to play with yeah. but now I think there's some energy to do this so like in my neighborhood I'm going to be talking to other parents about let's have, you know, a free-range kids group where, you know, the park that's right next to us, you know, like our kids are you know, our kids are able to get together and they have permission to go go play, you know they have cell phones for goodness sakes mm-hmm. now, like if they actually get in trouble, they, they can call, so play is a big part of it, probably one of the simplest ones is, you know, petition your local public school to uh, have the, the playground open for the hour, hour before and for two hours after school, you know, like your kids are going to want to hang out and play with their friends if they're allowed to. Mm -hmm. So play is a big part of it. Um, We also have come around to uh, gap years, um, taking a gap year between High school and in uh, um, college and and you know if once again if I could wave my ra- wave my ra- magic wand it would be you know if you live in New York City you go work in Arizona <laughs> you, mm. you know in a real job or you go to some basically you, you go away somewhere and and, and 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 the way that could happen actually relatively easily is if colleges show that they really valued it um, that that you would get extra um, attention if you if you had some real life experience before going mm. to school and by the way the research there is really strong uh, when I went to law school it was shocking how, well, not really shocking if you think about it, but really dramatic, the difference between the the students who had just come right out of college and the people who had, you know, jobs Mm -hmm. beforehand. And overwhelmingly, the people who had jobs or uh, had other lives before they went
1: to law school got better grades, they had better attendance. I went at at 30 and I could not believe the the people, the other kids in class, I'm with underclassmen. Yeah. And... They didn't care. Yeah. And, and it, it was, and this is amazing. Yeah. It was almost one on one with me and the professor because they didn't care. They just wanted yeah. to get through. Yeah. I wanted the information. Yeah. So gap year is definitely part of it. When it comes to colleges,
0: um, the biggest enemy in this is the idea that there's nothing that can be done. Um, There's so much people can be that can be done because, you know, a lot of your, you know, a lot of your listeners, you know, like um, the, they uh, people will send, you know, their, their little check to their alma mater or to where they want their daughter to go or their son and never ask them, do you have a speech code? do you teach anything mm-hmm. about freedom of speech in the orientation? Practically no schools do. And it's a sophisticated concept. It's something that really has to, you really have to understand it, and like I said, through debate, through formal debate, you can actually practice it, and that's how it really becomes a life skill. You should get rid of your speech codes, you should have classes on this stuff. I'm always thinking about high-rigor, low-cost ways to signal to employers that I'm dealing with like a, with an autodidact, with, with, with someone who actually really likes to study for I don't know, something goofy like the love of ideas. <laughs> There's a lot of things we can do and we have the website thecoddling.com and we want more suggestions too because because we can't give up given we've tried so little so far
1: Michael Reckenwald, you know what Michael Reckenwald is? I know the name. Anti-NYU professor, uh-huh. uh, got in trouble. Oh, yeah. Right, okay. um, I just talked to him a few weeks ago, and he said, I wouldn't send my kids to school. Yeah. I wouldn't send, I would it just, I it wouldn't. I know, um, you know, uh, Mike Rowe, yeah. who believes in, you know, college is not for everybody. Yeah. Where, where do you stand on college, especially with an outlook of the future? Yeah. Google and Apple and everybody saying, we're not even taking, I don't care about your Diploma anymore? Yeah. Show me what you've done. Well, um, I, th- I have a lot of
0: thoughts on that. I think about it all the time. There, there's this interesting idea that Jane McGonigal has on edge blocks, where edge block edge blocks. It's basically like a blockchain little thing that you can get on your ledger, basically on the, like something you carry with you that's your account, more or less. Wow! That tells you that, that if you want it to, you can tell somebody like every little class you took on something. Um, and I, as soon as I heard this idea, I realized. For fire, for where I work, because the, the great thing about fire is we are actually people all over the spectrum who mm-hmm. believe in freedom of speech. Mm-hmm. We, we we practice what we preach. Mm-hmm. The fact that my you know I, I'm more of an uh, old fashioned ACLU liberal, my executive director is is a Christian Republican, and I love that. Mm-hmm. Like we have arguments for and we, 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 different religious backgrounds. You know, like it's it's just, it, it, it's just absolutely phenomenal. But when we're interviewing people, the one way in which we're trying to figure out if you're one of us, we want to know if you're a free speech nerd. <laughs> we want to know if you read, you know, philosophy on your spare time or you read about Louis Brandeis or, you know, the, 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 or about Alien Sedition Act. And if, I, if rather than knowing that you went to fancy school A, um, I could see, oh, actually on your own time, you, you, you did, you know, 10 great courses on law and 50 books about Supreme mm-hmm. Court justices, then I realize you're really one of us. And that could be a really low cost way, way of signaling. Now, to be realistic, the Princetons and the Stanfords and the Harvards and the Yales aren't going anywhere. Mm-hmm. They're, they're international brands, um, uh, but it's still kind of criminal that they're able to charge seventy thousand dollars a year. And I think people should really be revolting about that. I think the amount of debt we put a generation into is horrible, um, and and it's holding back innovation. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm sure it's and it's just it's just a crummy thing to do, you know. And, and then of course for the kids who really who can afford all that, that gives them a huge leg up. It it, it feeds into all sorts of ills. So um, I think that some of the mid mid tier colleges have to really. Rethink think, their entire model, um, you know, low-cost, high rigor um, things that people can do. I, I was even thinking about a system where uh, you kind of trick people into, you know, if someone wants to take, like, the online class so they can knock out some credits before they go to college, you know, at the end of it, it's like, by the way, you got a super high pass. Do you want to go on to the next level? And the, and the final level of which would be an, a free and face one year of, a, of college, but it will be, like, you know, like a, a, a super international competition. We really Got to rethink some of these things and make sure that they achieve. But they have to achieve a couple things. They have to uh, say say that someone is uh, hardworking, um, uh, smart. But also shows that they can, you know, work as a team, that they can, uh, but we can do that in a much less expensive way. Because right now what we're doing is we're looking at people from these fancy schools and really all, the only hurdle for like a Harvard is, well, you know, you got some high IQ people who are hard workers and so just don't ruin them. <laughs> like, like, as long as they're not that much worse off uh, when, when they came out, they're mm-hmm. still probably going to be relatively good hires. And that's in- incredibly inefficient. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, for us, you know, like one thing that, that has really uh, been amazing is we've gotten a lot of great students from Indiana University, for example. But all of them were ones who had, by the time they were 20, had written great pieces on freedom of speech. And it's like that is a much better signal to me of what kind of person you are. Um, so we have really got to be more creative in the way we think. All right. Take take me to feelings. Uh-huh. Tell me what, what we should be doing on feelings. Well, in some ways, we should be taking them both more seriously and less. <laughs> and by more seriously, I mean, We want to be really clear here. There is a mental health crisis going on right now on on campus. Is it connected? We think it is. Um, We think that essentially, you know, and not to be too dismissive of it, but I think that um, we're teaching the gener- uh, generation the habits of anxious and depressed people. Yes. So we shouldn't be shocked they're anxious and depressed. Yes. So we got to rethink the way we parent and all sorts of stuff. But for the kids who are already there, the kids, and then here's, here's the worst thing we discovered. The single worst thing we discovered was that um, suicides going up for the first time in decades uh, and dramatically. Um, if you take the average overall, um, uh, suicides for boys um, since the first decade of this of, of this millennia has gone up by twenty five percent, which is an absolute disaster. For girls, it's gone up seventy percent, which is awful, which is un, which is an absolute calamity. Um, and if you count from two, and if you actually take the lowest point of the year to uh, two thousand seven, um, so if you go back almost exactly ten years, it's doubled. Um, since 2007. Um, So there is a real serious mental health problem going on here, but partially because I think we're disempowering students, we're teaching them all these uh, dysfunctional habits. But once they're already there, um, this idea that, uh, you know, I'll just give them a trigger warning no, that means you're actually not taking, the, taking it seriously enough. We have to make sure that there, there are apps that can get you in touch with serious psychologists. that are, um, th- they need to know about, about the existence of resources. But, you know, my preferred um, form of intervention for anxiety and depression is CBT. And like I said, people, you know, can get over the, the therapy part of it because if you look at what it teaches you, Um, The amazing thing is it teaches you how to argue fairly with yourself. And turns out that arguing fairly, not not everything's swell, not rose-colored glasses, but just being reasonable Mm -hmm. can make you less depressed and anxious. But the wonderful implication of this too, though, is as soon as you direct it outward as well and be like... Before I open my mouth, am I overgeneralizing? Am I labeling? Am I catastrophizing? Am I binary thinking? If we could, if, if people could learn that both through that inside, we'd have a better mental health uh, situation. If we could learn to do that outwardly facing, we'd have a much better p- political situation.
1: I want to be really careful here because mm-hmm. um, you know this, and I want to make sure people know that you know this. Um, I've had suicide in my family, and I've been clinically depressed, too. This therapy is not there. There is a stage where yeah. medicine is critical. You're absolutely right. Yeah, and, and and that's absolutely
0: worth saying. And we do say it in, in, in yeah. the book we we made a point of saying that. And I have um, I have, it gets me a little choked up. I gotta say um the, I had a another friend uh, kill himself at one point, and um I was walking down the street with one of my best friends, one of my groomsmen. Um, uh, and he talked about how selfish it was for that friend to kill himself. And even though this is one of my best friends in the world, he didn't know I was hospitalized as a danger to myself. And I had to, you know, I, I I said, like, listen, I wasn't in my right mind. You can't blame people in other circumstances. And there is a point where what I needed was supervision. I needed my family. Mm-hmm. I needed um uh, I needed medication. And, you ha- and I have to make sure that those resources are available, because yeah. after a certain point— It uh, becomes— Logical.
1: Yeah. It, it becomes uh, that was, logical.
0: That, that, I talk about this in the book. And the, and the mess, funny, I mean, funny, dark funny, is that, you know, um, someone was, uh, some, someone criticized an early draft saying, doesn't Greg know something about depression? You know, like, this is also cold, the way you're talking about it. I'm like, okay, I'll write what actually happened <laughs> to me. And I convinced myself, which is sometimes a, a, a habit that I have from fiction right. writing, this is just between me and you computer. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized I put down things that were things I'd never told literally anybody. My wife had never heard them. Um, I'd never actually said them out loud, but it's so funny. You've done that <laughs> yeah. with the microphone.
1: Oh, God. You've, You've done, done it with the computer. I've <laughs> yeah. done it with a microphone. Yeah. That is this is so just strange. between us, right? Yeah. It's yeah. so crazy.
0: And, and, the, and the messed up thing was, um, I did have little flickers of sanity during when I was really mm-hmm. trying to. And, um, but the yelling back in my brain was, no, you have to do this now before you feel better, because this is the true thing. Mm-hmm. Like, the, basically, if you continue to live, you're living a lie, because what I, you actually need to do is. And it's mm-hmm. just like. And I you convince
1: People People say it's selfish. No, no, no. Oh, no. Not at that point. You, you think you are doing everyone else a great service. I actually was so messed up at one
0: point. I thought I could actually ask my sister for help. And I, uh, I hope she doesn't hear that because I would probably make her cry. But I, you, 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 and just, and I mean my sister who loves me very much, and of course, that's completely insane. insane. To, to think but that. But you are but, but, insane. But you are temporarily. So yeah, so uh, I'm glad you brought it up because we talk about suicide prevention yeah. when, you, when you reach a certain point and be on the lookout for your friends when they get like that. But oh, which brings me though to a messed up case here. Yes. Um, because not all of this stuff is all that ideological. Some of the stuff we see on campuses are, uh, are lawyers trying to protect the bottom line of their universities.
1: It's one of the scariest things I've ever read.
0: University of Northern Michigan had a policy that if you went to the counseling center, you would get a scary letter from the dean of students uh, from, the, from, from the disciplinary dean saying you will be brought up on you'll be uh, brought up on charges if you talk to anybody about your thoughts of self-harm besides us uh, yeah besides us and the, uh, we first found out about this from someone who went in she was been sexually assaulted she was just going there to talk about that she didn't say anything about self-harm but nonetheless she gets this scary letter And, you know, with my personal experience with it and everybody else who knows anything about it, I'm like, are you telling me that you told people who were in some cases kind of depressed that one, they should isolate themselves and two, (laughs) that they're a burden on their friends? And there were some quotes that sounded exactly like that. And that comes from one of the motivations that can also be somewhat more easily fixed. Um, Universities. they react, they overreact to the threats of lawsuits. So in this case, they had this misconception that if they if they did that, that would protect them from lawsuits for suicide. It's bad science. It's bad law. Um, it was amazing and so cruel that they thought that. Um, but they also, uh, also federal regulation, you know, making sure that that makes that's clear and, and makes sense. Because some of the motivating factors in this stuff isn't ideological at all. It's university uh, administrators thinking that they're somehow protecting the institution and they don't really care who they hurt
1: try the last one sure what do we do good and evil
0: Oi, um, we're open to ideas there um, the i mean we definitely you know john definitely thinks that we have to have more viewpoint diversity on campus you have to know someone smart who totally disagrees with the with the reigning orthodoxy
1: i have to tell you mm-hmm. um uh, there you never no university even i i maybe maybe if Couple. Mm -hmm. No universities would allow me to teach media. Now, why? Yeah. You know, if you have a wealth of experience, I'm not saying that I should, Mm -hmm. but if you're a conservative, there's no way you get on campus. Yeah. So how is that going to happen?
0: Yeah, and, and it has to be that people value it, and right now they, they don't. You know, If you start actually taking viewpoint diversity seriously, like Heights really been trying to get them to, and he, is, he does have, there are 2,000 members of Heterodox Academy, which is not bad for a new organization. Mm-hmm. Um, and as soon as you get that if it's just an echo chamber, you produce dumber and dumber <laughs> <laughs> ideas. Um, if you have nobody to say, that actually sounds pretty, pretty goofy.
1: Can I ask you a question? How is it that the people who have um, uh, tenure uh-huh. to protect oh, yeah. ideas—the yeah. people that are that know Galileo—how yeah. is it they haven't realized that they've become the church? This is uh, as far as something that has just been a huge disappointment to me. Because in
0: theory, tenure makes perfect sense to me. Um, but other than some really notable exceptions, people, great people like Alan Charles Coors, who I mentioned before, uh, some, prof- uh, you know, Robbie George, uh, there, there are a lot of professors who just, oh, for that matter, Cornell West, his friend, who don't stand up, who they have the best protected jobs in the universe, pretty mm-hmm. much. And nonetheless, they don't stand up for the rights of students or for their fellow faculty members when they get in trouble. And it's just like, how much more protection do you actually want? So unfortunately, I would, you know, I, I, these tenured professors, could actually be a force for good
1: in some of these situations, but they're just not. That's uh, too bad. And, and, so, and, and sometimes, because I love Robbie George and Cornell West, I love that, that. And those guys are those, those guys are a force, right? And 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 Peter Singer, I love the way that yep. you. Ha- That's the way it should be. Yeah, I want to hear Peter Singer and Robbie George. Yep. Talk about the ethics of life. Yeah, that's what
0: I want. Yep. And those are the, the, and those are absolutely absolutely amazing talks. Um, I think Heather McDonald. I actually realized that we totally agreed on one thing, which was uh, the, everybody should listen to the great courses. And maybe some a way to get a, a good cheap education would be have someone listen to all the lectures, read some of the books, and take a test at the end. Might actually yeah. serve you a little better
1: than I've some of some of the, some the, of the courses. courses. <laughs> some mm-hmm. of the courses I took. Yeah. yeah. Thank you. Uh, such a pleasure. Thank you.